Hi everybody! During the months of March and April, we are highlighting the work of Rios to Rivers in our community effort to showcase organizations who are working towards social justice, environmental action, and more inclusive public lands. Rios to Rivers inspires the protection of rivers worldwide by investing in underserved and indigenous youth who are intimately connected to their local waters and support them in their development as the next generation of environmental stewards. Founded in 2012, Rios to Rivers programs have connected 234 underserved and indigenous students from 20 endangered river basins in seven countries. The programs have included students and community leaders from 21 indigenous nations. Rios to Rivers envisions a world in which youth who are intimately connected to their local waters and tribal communities are equipped to become the next generation of passionate leaders for healthy rivers and communities. Make monthly charitable giving a trend in your life in 2024 and help to support Rios to Rivers this March and April. Visit the link in our Instagram bio for more information. Hello and welcome to Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. I'm Dusty. And I'm Mike. And welcome to our Season 5 Summit. If you're joining us for the first time, our summit episodes succinctly summarize our season through four specific lenses, visitorship, environment, histories, and hiking trails. Our summit on visitorship examines crowdedness, accessibility, location to civilization, and a whole manner of things you might be curious about when you're visiting one of these parks. Our summit on environment takes a look at the wildlife and environmental landscape and the effect of climate change on each of the national parks we visited on this season. This week's summit on history examines the past and present issues going on in the park from many perspectives. Okay, so speaking of histories, what are some gaps that you had from history class? That's a great question. I love history. Mm -hmm. Um, That was something I thought maybe I would go to be a teacher of if I wasn't an art teacher, because I really, really liked history. Well, specifically art history. I do have to say, as somebody who also loves history, particularly art history, it is a very special thing to get to go to an art museum with you, Mm. because I felt like art history was a huge gap for me. Mm. And so going through a Mm. museum with you, I'm like... Okay, remind me the difference between cubism and expressionism. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. like, when did this thing start? Mm -hmm. And like, this was impressionism and this was not. All of that, I live. Yeah. So I actually think then my gaps are cultural history. Mm. I feel like, you know, it's like how, what informed this movement in writing? What and how did this move? Like, I know you say that you feel like that when it comes to art history. You're like, I have gaps there. Mm. Um, Not to answer the question for you. But like, for me, it's like, I don't know, like music history. I don't really know. Theater history. I don't really know. Like, those are things that were never really specific specifically taught. Um, so I feel like there's a lot lacking there. And I feel like that then can kind of parlay into the bigger sense of while I did have a like a European history class, I feel like I'm missing a lot of European history. Mm. Um, I think even just world history in general, like I wish that there was a bigger breath. And I think this is still a pervasive issue for history of just different parts of the world and how different things. I mean, history is so vast, but is there a way that history could be better to to include, especially from an American perspective, things that were happening elsewhere in the world at the same time Mm. that these major advancements were happening in America and how that like lined up. What was going on in Europe at the time of, you know, we obviously know the French Revolution was just brewing at the time of the Mm -hmm. American Revolution, but what was happening in Africa? What was happening in Asia? Like that 
that's gaps that just, you know, I feel like very lacking when I come to my mm-hmm. world history. I remember taking theater history class, which I feel like when we go see theater that references specific moments from theater history or genre in theater mm-hmm. history, then I get to return the favor for you. Sure. Yeah. But I remember like my theater history teacher is one of the greatest teachers I've ever had. Also, she listens to our show. So shout out to Teresa because she was one of the best theater history, uh, one of the best teachers I've ever had, period, let alone professors, let alone professors of theater history. But I remember like speaking directly to what you were saying is Teresa would say like okay in a different theater class or a different theater history class you would only be learning about ancient Greece here in this moment now we're headed here we're headed here we're headed to this part of the world we're headed over here we're headed over here all of this is happening at the same time you need to know that too and so like there was always sort of like a connecting thread connecting thread and global thread and like something that I loved that I I never thought about history this way until I took her class, which was to not think of it as like a timeline, Mm -hmm. to think of it more spherically. Mm. And that she said theater history in particular, and I would imagine art history does Mm -hmm. something similar. It's not about like we go here and then something new happens and then we come here and something new happens. It's like we're always borrowing and like pulling from different parts of the thread around the giant sphere at any point in time. Now the sphere has moved here and we're pulling this thread. Now it's moved here and we're pulling this thread. And it's showing up here in the 18th century in Germany and it's showing up again in the 20th century in Japan. Yeah, well, I would say that theater is a web. It's like a spider's web, yeah. as, a, as opposed well, to a sphere. art, I would yeah. say, is like a web. Sure. Yeah, like yeah. a web. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Trigger warning. As with many reports, when it comes to indigenous people, today's trail mix will contain accounts of genocide. Let's start by talking about New River Gorge National Park, the first park that we visited this season. In order to talk about New River Gorge, we have to talk about a very important fact that seems glaringly left out of all the information I had seen until recently. The New River is actually one of the oldest rivers in the world, and the oldest river in North America. What? Whoa. Yes. Okay. No, I didn't know that either. Yeah. The oldest river in North America. Mm-hmm. I would not have guessed that of no. all the rivers. Mm-mm. Yeah, that's wild. Mm-hmm. The park, which obviously draws so much of its splendor from the river, also draws so much of it uh, from its history. Now, there is a lot of debate as to the actual age of the river and how one dates such a permanent yet ephemeral thing. But one thing is clear. This river's history dates back long before the people of the area. Turning our attention to the people, we would like to acknowledge that while hiking and visiting the land, also known as New River Gorge, that we are on the traditional and stolen land of the Manaton, Yuchi, Shawanwaki, Shawnee, and Tutelo peoples. The continent of North America has a rich history and evolution of the first peoples. From crossing the land bridge from Asia to dispersing across the continent, the cultures of the first people grew and expanded in relation to the environment. It is believed that the first people reached the eastern part of the continent around 15,000 years ago. Around the end of the last glacial period, Clovis culture developed across North America. Clovis
Indigenous culture refers to indigenous culture which manufactured and utilized distinctive bone and ivory tools as weapons. This was a game changer by way of what it was to hunt big game, like mastodon, bison, and caribou. Clovis points, which is where the people and culture get their name from, have been found in abundance at a variety of sites, like New River Gorge, and they get their name from an archaeological site, Blackwater Locality Number 1, near Clovis, New Mexico, hence the designation of Clovis Culture. As the climate warmed and glaciers retreated, deciduous trees began to conquer the landscape. Around 10,000 to 3,000 years ago, these shifts in the environment and climate caused shifts in the way in which people lived their lives, hunted, and even farmed. As time drummed on, more advancements came to the region by way of pottery and ceramics, and throwing spears became their smaller cousin, the bow and arrow. As time continued to march on between 900 and 500 years ago, farming became more of a mainstay to the people of the region of the river. And by the Little Ice Age, 700 years ago, indigenous people from the north added to the tapestry of agriculture already occurring in the region. In an era more common with the time of white settlers arriving to the continent, 1492 through the 1600s, farming was still important to the lifeblood of the indigenous people of the region, along with trade. And it is with the arrival of white settlers and their spread ever westward, thanks Manifest Destiny, that so much of the hardship and gruesome treatment of these native peoples was perpetuated in the first place. Upon the arrival of settlers to the region in the 1700s, the Tutelo people were forced to move north, assimilating into the Cayuga tribe of New York in the 1750s. The Yuchi also made moves at the end of the 1600s. They headed south toward Alabama, Georgia, and South Carolina, as well as the panhandle of Florida. Disease, war, and forced relocation decimated their population, though some Yuchi still remain, now in Oklahoma. And the Monoton, while native to the region, when the settlers arrived, are no more. Like all the spaces in the National Park Service, and in America in general, these lands were once somebody else's. Lands that were taken care of, respected, and preserved in accordance with keeping nature in balance. While some of these native peoples may have died out during the time of occupation by white settlers, others were forcibly moved, removed, murdered, and in some cases eradicated completely. As land and resources became important for the new denizens of the land known as America, with the onset of the Industrial Revolution, this became the case even more so. Coal became king, and an important method of heating and eventually power. Coal became a lifeblood for the New River Gorge region and surrounding communities. In fact, New River Gorge was a major supplier of coal to the industrial world. Mines developed in and around the parks, railroads rolled into the region, and migrant workers followed suit. Coal mining was and is dangerous work, with fatalities in the mine and later from the exposure to dust and particles. Mining towns blossomed and populated, with miners being paid in company scrip, which could only be used in the mining town store. This led to miners unionizing or attempting to unionize, which eventually led to conflict after conflict, culminating in the Battle of Blair Mountain, which was the largest insurrection in the United States since the Civil War. While we could invest a whole trail mix into these mine wars, as they have been dubbed, suffice it to say, the actions of the miners, the mining companies, the state of West Virginia, and the federal government really put a spotlight onto workers' rights and the labor rights movement, not just in mining, but in general. Now, let's turn and look at the area also known as Theodore Roosevelt National Park, which is found on the traditional and stolen land of the Mandan, Hadatsta, Arikara, Crow, and many other indigenous people. Long before Theodore Roosevelt visited the area called the Northern Plains, this area served as home and hunting ground for many. 
Artifacts have been found dating back to 5,500 BCE. Spear points, pot shards, and other tools indicate the presence of people using tools to hunt bison, though there is little evidence to indicate long-term stay or permanent residence in this area. Other artifacts from later in the timeline suggest people coming to the area for eagle trapping. Many groups of indigenous people moved to and passed through this area for bison hunting, eagle trapping, and to create a permanent or semi-permanent home, including the Mandan, Hadatsta, and Crow, as well as the Blackfeet, Grow, Venter, Chippewa, Cree, Sioux, and Rocky Boy peoples. Eagle trapping was a particularly important practice to the Mandan and Hadatsta people, and this area was and is still known for its eagle population. This area was also a place where many buffalo roam, and the badlands located here also offered a more humane way to hunt bison. Hunters could create a circumstance where the buffalo could run off the edge of a badland formation rather than the need to use a weapon. The indigenous people of the plains made use of every part of the bison for clothing, food, shelter, warmth, tools, toys, medicine, and more. Many years later, Theodore Roosevelt visited the area. While we will not unpack everything here about Theodore Roosevelt, we do encourage you to listen to our trail mix on him and the follow-up trail mix without a trace. Theodore Roosevelt is certainly known for his conservation efforts. After his death, a way to memorialize him and his work was sought out. The idea for a national monument was first recommended. There were already plans to preserve some of the area called the Little Missouri National Grasslands. The committee that was formed to establish a park in his name sought out this area because of Roosevelt's cattle ranching days in this area of North Dakota. According to the MPS, quote, a portion of these new federal holdings was earmarked for a park. In 1934, a cooperative agreement to start a Roosevelt Regional Park project was signed by the Resettlement Administration and the Civilian Conservation Corps, the National Park Service, and the state of North Dakota. The federal government wanted the project to become a state park. The CCC operations began immediately and were administered by the National Park Service employees. The North and South Roosevelt Regional Parks had their own camps. By 1935, these sites were designated the Roosevelt Recreation Demonstration Area, or the RDA. Developments by workers from the CCC as well as the Works Projects Administration and the Emergency Relief Administration included construction of roads, trails, picnic areas, campgrounds, and buildings. End quote. By 1941, construction was complete, but there was still uncertainty around who would manage the park. In 1946, Roosevelt Recreation Demonstration Area was transferred to the management of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services and called the Theodore Roosevelt National Wildlife Refuge. Then, in 1947, President Truman signed a bill creating Theodore Roosevelt National Memorial Park, a one-of-a-kind park in the NPS at the time. And then, in 1978, President Carter signed the bill creating Theodore Roosevelt National Park. Hey everybody, we are actively planning our hiking for this year, and so you know what that means. Our moon travel guides are out and about, we're marking them up, and we're writing in all of our notes. We sincerely love them, and we use moon travel guides all the time. Moon is our favorite travel guidebook publisher because their authors are real people who live in and know the areas they're writing about like the back of their hand. And we can trust them from hikes to campsites to city sites to restaurants. Moon Travel has you covered. So ready to cross something off your travel bucket list in 2024? Have a lot of great ideas for trips but don't know how to get started or keep your itinerary organized? Wherever your wanderings might take you or inspire you to go, Moon Travel has you covered. Moon Travel 
is the travel guidebook publisher for ethical travel. Don't spend months trying to craft the perfect getaway when you can do it all with Moon. Whether you're headed out abroad, planning to take on the open road, or want to wander the trails of a national park, make sure to pack a Moon travel guide with you. And through the end of 2024, our listeners can exclusively get 20% off any Moon travel guide when you go to moon.com. Use the code GAZE24 at checkout. That's right. That is moon.com and use code GAZE24. And that's G-A-Z-E-2-4 for 20% off any Moon Travel Guide in Moon's entire library at moon.com. And that is exclusively for gays listeners. Hey, everybody, we are actively planning our hiking for this year. And so you know what that means. Our moon travel guides are out and about. We're marking them up and we're writing in all of our notes. We sincerely love them and we use moon travel guides all the time. Moon is our favorite travel guidebook publisher because their authors are real people who live in and know the areas they're writing about like the back of their hand. And we can trust them. From hikes to campsites to city sites to restaurants, Moon Travel has you covered. So ready to cross something off your travel bucket list in 2024? Have a lot of great ideas for trips but don't know how to get started or keep your itinerary organized? Wherever your wanderings might take you or inspire you to go, Moon Travel has you covered. Moon Travel is the travel guidebook publisher for ethical travel. Don't spend months trying to craft the perfect getaway when you can do it all with Moon. Whether you're headed out abroad, planning to take on the open road, or want to wander the trails of a national park, make sure to pack a Moon travel guide with you. And through the end of 2024, our listeners can exclusively get 20% off any Moon travel guide when you go to moon.com. Use the code GAZE24 at checkout. That's right. That is Moon. Dot com and use code GAZE24, and that's G-A-Z-E-2-4, for 20% off any Moon Travel Guide in Moon's entire library at moon.com, and that is exclusively for gays listeners. Let's now turn our focus to another area with Badlands. Badlands National Park, in the land also called South Dakota. It is located on the traditional and stolen land of the Cheyenne, Oglala Lakota, and Osheti Shikoan peoples. In this area, artifacts of humans were found dating all the way back to 7,000 years ago, including evidence of hunting buffalo, mammoth, and other animals. Fire pits were also found in the Pinnacles area of the park. Indigenous tribes have been connected to the area also called the Black Hills since about 1000 ACE. These people also include the Kadoan, Athabascan, Kiowa, and Shoshonean people. Other peoples in this area at the time include the Comanche, Arapaho, and Cheyenne. Around 1775, the Oglala Lakota people, as well as the Brule people, moved to this area. This was the first evidence of permanent residence in this area, known as the Badlands, rather than temporary and nomadic residence. However, their first encounters with Europeans were not until 25 years later later. In 1868, a treaty was signed to move the Oglala Lakota people to the Pine Ridge Agency, now called the Pine Ridge Reservation. However, six years later, gold was discovered in the area, which led to white settler homesteaders illegally claiming the land in violation of the treaty. This caused the Oglala people to move north to Canada in order to find more bison. Are we shocked? No. (laughs) 
are we shocked no. that this is history and this is what happened? Of course no. not. No, of course. No. To people that aren't white in America? This is also, this lines up in, in history with the Great Buffalo Slaughter. This lines up with that timeline mm. too. The conflict intensified between the Lakota people and the white homesteaders, eventually leading to a massacre of 200 Lakota tribe members, half of whom were women and children. The relationship between this area of land and the Oglala Lakota people would, generations later, begin to be constructed again. Years later, the U.S. Senator from South Dakota, Peter Norbeck, led the way for the designation of this area to become a national monument, which was granted in 1939. Years after this, in 1976, Badlands National Monument began to rebuild the relationship to the Oglala Lakota tribe. When they entered into a co-management agreement, the Oglala Lakota tribe would manage the South Unit, also known as the Stronghold District. This agreement led to the expanse of the Stronghold District to include 244,000 acres with 64,000 acres specifically of wilderness. In 1978, the park was designated as a national park, thus providing an example of white settler government and indigenous people co-managing an area of land before national park status. From the Department of Interior, quote, many notable Native American leaders and warriors were members of the Oglala Sioux tribe, including Crazy Horse and Red Cloud. Today, the southern unit of Badlands National Park, including the White River Visitor Center, is on Pine Ridge Reservation. This part of the park is managed in cooperation with the Oglala Sioux Tribe. The White River Visitor Center has exhibits that offer information about Lakota history and culture, and on select dates, visitors can experience cultural demonstrations involving music, dancing, crafts, and more, end quote. And lastly, we would like to turn our attention to our final park of the season, Indiana Dunes National Park. We would like to acknowledge that while hiking there, that we are on the traditional and stolen lands of the Kickapoo, Peoria, Kaskaskia, Potawatomi, and Miamia people. The land that is now Indiana Dunes National Park, for the most part, is believed to have been the seasonal hunting grounds of the above-listed tribes. The discovery of ancient earth mounds nearby to the park also suggests that there may have been longer-term settlements in the area. At the very least, it is believed that these mounds were used for ceremonial and cultural purposes. While the park itself had less permanent civilizations in its bounds, the indigenous people who utilized the park didn't necessarily have a long history in the area, as much of the tribal influence in and around the park was due to displacement. This displacement came by way of conflict, most notably the Beaver Wars, or as they may be more commonly known, the Iroquois Wars. While it is believed that the Potawatomi and Miamia people inhabited the areas in and around the parkland prior to this conflict, they dispersed until the conflict ended in the late 1600s. As expansion by white settlers continued, many indigenous tribes of the East, the Lenape and Shawnee, made their way west to Indiana. French fur traders were the first groups of white men to arrive in the area, utilizing trails of indigenous people and setting up a petite fort in the area of the dunes, which later became the site of a small Revolutionary War skirmish. As wars started and ended, Joseph Bailey moved into the area and set up residence, which can still be seen within the park itself. As time ebbed on and post-Revolutionary War conflict between white settlers and indigenous people increased, and as land and western territories became a greater interest to the manifest destiny of the time, the Indian Removal Act of 1830 was eventually signed, triggering the removal of tribes. This act 
Act was a major departure from how the United States dealt with Native peoples. While originally intended as a treaty to negotiate Native people out of their land for lands of the Western Prairie, which were undesirable for white settlers, the Act is responsible for an incredible amount of hardship, murder, and genocide among Native people of the land, also known as America. If the terms Trail of Tears and Trail of Death don't mean anything to you, then it might be time to brush up on your U.S. history and the treatment of indigenous people of this land. As the indigenous people of Indiana were eventually relocated, the land in and around the dunes became a valuable asset and resource, especially as the city of Chicago grew. Railroads eventually crisscrossed what is now the parkland, and the lumber industry boomed. As immigrants moved west, a group of Swedes and Germans set up farms in and around what is now the park. The Shellberg Farm, which still stands, is an example of one of these Swedish farms. As Chicago continued to expand, and industry continued to develop and boom, the dunes became a greater interest as a resource. Whether it was for fill, for concrete, or as a site for steel plants, the dunes began to be carted away and leveled. Swampland became filled, and the flow of rivers were changed. This created concern among the residents of the dunes and the nearby communities, and eventually found their way to Indiana Senator Taggart, who brought a resolution to Congress regarding the purchase of some of the Lakeshore counties to create a national park. Stephen T. Mather, the first director of the National Park Service, conducted an investigation into this prospect, but ultimately the country's entrance into World War I precluded any action regarding the proposed park. As the war ended and the dunes continued to be pilfered and mistreated by the surrounding industry and encroachment of communities, the Illinois General Assembly took action and created the Indiana Dunes State Park in 1927. The fight for a national park would march on and not with particular ease, as many Senate bills were introduced to do just that in the 1950s and 1960s. It wasn't until 1966 that the dunes would receive protected designation as a national lakeshore prior to becoming a national park park in 2019. All right. Yeah. So we have like, for the four parks we visited this season, we definitely have some crossover. Absolutely. As far as like what happened prior to them becoming parks. Yeah. I mean, That's, I that think could be the case for any of the parks. In the park or service. any of the land here yeah. in America. Yeah. Yeah. In this land we also call America. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important that part of the reason we do a native land acknowledgement is to actively work against native erasure, indigenous erasure. And I think that is something that has been a practice of ours for a long time, almost since the start of the show. I would say it's something that we've done. I really think it important that, you know, one of the, the smallest acts that you can take as a visitor to a national park space is to have a little bit of a groundwork in what the history of the park is, specifically from the indigenous perspective. And the information is out there and it's easier to find than you might think. But just at least knowing whose land you were on now in this park space, because there is a very big push for land back yes. to move land back and to yes. increasingly we're seeing more co-management happen throughout the parks yes which is great which is you know oh, honestly we are here for that um something that should be happening more and we should be seeing more of this space returned to first peoples and there's a lot to be said for that specifically i think of this tying really well into our environment episode because the first people the indigenous people of these lands knew how to care for these spaces were the stewards of the landscape and part of the indian removal or the native american removal as it should be called of the 1830 act forced people 
from homelands that they were familiar with, that they knew the landscape of, that they could care for, that they knew how to tend to the resources of that land, knew how to utilize the resources of that land without taking too much, and displace them into undesirable landscapes where they were unfamiliar, had no sense of what that landscape was giving them. It was an incredible difference from their homeland. And obviously, I can't speak to that on a level of personal experience. That's not my experience. But it is something that you can actually see through history. And you can actually see as a way to fully just conquer the continent through manifest destiny. It's just push these original people off their land. It is it's racism at its core. Um, oh, yeah. And it is incredible that, <laughs> that that's where we're still... Like, it just feels like this, like, what? How have we not <laughs> fully come to terms with this and rectified this? Because we just totally decimated a people that lived in harmony with this environment. And we took and took and took. And uh, it's really incredible that this is the history of our country. That really isn't told as much in this light as it should be. No, not at all. Yeah. Back to gaps in history class. Yeah, yeah. This and is gas a big lighting. one. And gaslighting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is a real big one. Just think about that anytime you stand up and pledge allegiance to the flag. Yeah. That's one thing. One small but incredibly large thing to think about. Oh, yeah. The sources for today's trail mix include the article Uncovering Native History in the Badlands National Park by Ali Yang and John Waterman, published on National Geographic. The article The History of Badlands National Park by Laura A. Bidwell, published by Moon Travel Guides. The article The History of Badlands National Monument, published by the NPS. The article Ten Things You Didn't Know About Badlands National Park, published by the U.S. Department of the Interior. The paper Cultural Affiliation Statement and Ethnographic Resource Assessment study for Knife River Indian Village's National Historic Site, Fort Union Trading Post National Historic Site, and Theodore Roosevelt National Park, North Dakota, by M.N. Zdenio of the Bureau of Applied Research and Anthropology at the University of Arizona, Tucson. The articles Establishing Theodore Roosevelt National Park, Cultural History of Theodore Roosevelt National Park, and the Park Archives, published by the National Park Service. The article Theodore Roosevelt National Park, published on National Geographic. The Indigenous History of New River Gorge National Park by R.V. Share. The article Prehistory of Native Americans in the Lower New River Region by NPS. The New River Gorge NPS website. The Indigenous History of Indiana Dunes National Park by R.V. Share. The article Daily Life for Native American Groups in the Lands that Became Indiana from the Indiana Department of Natural Resources. The Indiana Dunes National Lakeshore Resource Guide from NPS. And the Indiana Dunes NPS website. And now, let's end this summit with a queen and a game. All right, it's time for Drag Corner here on this summit. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage. Celeste, we forget. Her last name is we forget. We forget. <laughs> and her first name is Celeste. Mm-hmm. Celeste, we forget. We forget. Um. Oh, is she Irish? We forget. Celeste, we we forget. Well, I feel like then that's going to be about Irish history, but she could be an Irish queen that is a world historian. Okay. Yeah. Great. Mm -hmm. Well, I feel like um, in the universe of Celeste, we forget. Mm -hmm. We forget are like crackers or something. Mm -hmm. We forget. Do you need some we forgets (laughs) for for that coffee that you're drinking right there? (laughs) 
That's so they're biscuits, is what they are. Yeah, they're biscuits. Mm-hmm. But as you know, Ireland and England love to famously like England very much shut out Ireland and like calls them, you know, like famously they were like um, always looked at them like they were like lower mm-hmm. than England, lower class, mm-hmm. lower status. People, writers from Ireland who would go to England would try to hide the fact that they were Irish. Mm-hmm. Oscar Wilde, Mm -hmm. who was born in Dublin. (laughs) But uh, yeah, no, I feel like instead of biscuits, as a reaction against England, they would call them We Forgets. We Forgets. Celeste Well, I feel like the ad campaign for that would be, like, have something important to do. Don't forget a We Forget. (laughs) That's it. Don't forget a We Forget. (laughs) We Forgets warm you up and remind you of that important thing to do. Remember. <laughs> Remember. <laughs> That's what's printed on them. Remember. It's like raised in printing. Like, Love it. Uh-huh. A we forget. Like, it just um, says remember on like it. Like we're really on a weird tangent we here, are. but I love that this is our merch now. Um, it's like a... Um, a Bevita cracker. Yeah. It's like printed on the top there. Oh, I we love, forget. I love uh-huh. it. it. Except it says remember instead. I mean, it does sound a little bit like wafer. We mm-hmm. forget, right? We forget. Um, <laughs> it's really good. Okay. So let's talk about her as a drag mm-hmm. artist. Like, I do feel like she probably has that. She probably does something with that. I feel like she does like period. She has a period look. Maybe she starts the number in a period look. Mm-hmm. And then she ends the number in like a really fierce sort of modern look like she's like gone she's time traveled so i imagine there being a lot of pageantry here and it's like a learning opportunity like Uh it is like i'm gonna tell you a story through song Mm -hmm. so i don't know that she has like a lip sync i feel like everything is original it's like i'm going to like transport you. i love that it's like it's original music yeah it's original music so she is she sings live she sings live songs she's written yeah and what kind of she is she telling specific moments maybe she's filling in the gaps in she's, history she's a gap filler <laughs> that's right that's right a she's a gap, gap filler, filler. queen mm-hmm. yeah there's the term they use on drag race all the time called a filler queen uh-huh and you don't want to be that. You no. don't want to be somebody added just to like... Mm-hmm. Fill time. Fill time or mm-hmm. fill out the rest of the docket, mm-hmm. you know? But she yeah. is a gap filler queen. She is a gap filler queen. I think that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage. Celeste, we forgot. And now, let's end this episode with some Jeopardy-style trivia. All right. So, we're going to do some before, during, and after here frenzies. Oh, right. And, um, like, it's scissor, sister, sister, sledge. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, like, three answers in there. Yeah, yeah. Scissor, sister, 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 mm-hmm. and sister, sister sledge. sledge. Yeah. So this all, every answer will have a song that relates to time in it mm. at some point. Okay, so that's going to appear somewhere. It'll appear somewhere. Got okay. it. Great. Well, I think that works well with the queen that we just... Um, I think so, too. We just brought to life. How fortuitous. Apropos. Apropos. All right, for 100. Because Celeste, we forget. Mm-hmm. We forgets. Mm-hmm. All right, for 100. This share song about time travel, with these multiplication practices you learned in grade school, with what you might do if you needed to move a topic of a meeting to a later time. What is... Turn back times table that for a later meeting. If table was, that for next time. Yeah, that's fine. I'll take it. What is if I could turn back times table the conversation? 
Got it. Great. Great. So yeah, you're close enough there. Great. I got it. For 200, the full title of this traumatic film about three lost pets and a family searching for them, with this titular song sung by Anastasia, with this phrase you might utter to someone at the dinner table if you would like more sodium on your food. Okay, so it wouldn't be considered titular because the song's not named Anastasia. Oh, okay. That's the only way we use titular. Okay, it was the titular character. (laughs) (laughs) If it has the title and the name. Great. Well, then I missed, that was a malapropism on my part. There you go. There we go. go. All right. So this famous song from, sung by Anastasia. Mm -hmm. So the answer is, what is Homeward Bound, the incredible journey to the past, even though this isn't almost before, during, and after. Most of them are. Okay. So it's almost before, during, and after time. Yeah. Uh, what is Homeward Bound, the incredible journey to the past, the salt, please? Absolutely. Congratulations. Thank yes. you. They are, most of them are almost before, during, and after. Sorry. Okay, got it, got that it, got was it, got my bads. Okay, so this, this for 300, for, okay. this famous finale song from Dirty Dancing and the Sandals Resort commercials with the first part of this speech by Ferris Bueller that ends with, if you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it, with this Paul Walker and Vin Diesel movie franchise. What is... Okay, so admittedly, I don't know the second one mm. because I don't know the name of that speech, but I will give it a guess. Okay. What is... I've had the time of my life moves fast and the furious. You're you were very close. It is what is the time of my life moves pretty fast and the furious. Got it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I miss yeah. the pretty. You haven't seen well, you usually do. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. I was waiting for that. I set you up for it. You've not seen Ferris Bueller? No, I have many okay. times, but I don't like... You don't have that locked I in. don't have the title of that speech locked in. Well, I mean, it's just life moves pretty fast if you don't stop and look around once in a while. Okay. Yeah, you could miss it. I guess that's the theme of the movie. Yeah. 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 Great. For 400, this queen song that posits a question about immortality with how a child might describe a very long time with an added 24 hours extra added in for good measure with this monkey song that asks Sleepy Jean to cheer up. This is a toughie. Okay. No, I, but I think I can get it. I don't know the queen song. Well, if you were someone that, you know, but I think if immortality, hold on, hold on. But I think like, I know, I think I know second and And third, third, which is like forever and a daydream believer. That's correct. Right. Yeah. So I don't know the first. So if I was asking you a question about immortality. Uh huh. It would obviously end in the word forever, mm-hmm. but I don't know. But like, why would you want to do that? What? How would you? How could you rephrase that with forever at the end of it? I don't know. Who wants to live forever? Okay, that's a, a giant day. leap. For, no, it's with not. That question. It's it not. Is. It's not. Just be better. <laughs> <laughs> don't get bitter. Just, Just be better. get better. <laughs> All right. And for five hundred, this Frank Sinatra song that starts with "When I was seventeen, da 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 da," and also might be how you would describe an excellent 365 days with this Chinese Zodiac year named for this striped feline with this William Blake poem whose first line ends with in the forests of the night. Okay, so the second part is year of the tiger mm-hmm. and I don't know that poem. Oh, Tiger and the, the tiger and the, and the fish, the tiger and the cat. <laughs> <laughs> the tiger and the fish. You got it. I don't know. Yeah. What is that? So what's the third part? Tiger, tiger burning bright in the forests of the night. Sorry, I don't know that. 
obscure poem. It's not obscure. Tiger, tiger, You're burning bright. I don't know. It's pretty obscure. <laughs> no. Okay, great. So this first thing ends with the word year. What is my favorite year? Mm-mm. What is a really darn good year? You're getting close. What is a, a, a wonderful year? How about it was a very good year? Got it. Mm-hmm. Okay. It, what was was, a, it was, was a very, very good, good year, year of the, the tiger, 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 burning, burning bright. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Oh, you didn't have to say anything there, but you could. I know. Well, <laughs> there it is. Mm-hmm. Tiger, tiger, burning bright, everyone. Mm-hmm. This has been the Season 5 Summit here at Gaze at the National Parks the podcast and we're here to remind you to hike early and hike often and that adventure is always out there gaze of the national parks was created and is hosted by us dustin Ballard, and michael ryan to see images from this episode follow our instagram at gaze at the national parks to contact us email us at gaze at the national parks at gmail.com and to find out more about the parks visited on this show visit our website gaze at the national parks.com and that's gaze g-a-z-e all original artwork featured on instagram on our website and in the gaze shop is by me, Michael Ryan. All original music was written and performed by Dave Seaman and Mariella Klinger with Sean Slios on guitar. Our music producer is Skylar Fordgang. This episode was edited by me, Dustin Ballard. We would also like to acknowledge that while recording this episode, we were on the traditional and stolen lands of the Lenape people, also known as Middlesex County, New Jersey. 